So I uh, want to welcome everybody to Four Winds Church tonight. I hope you're having a, uh, a good week and a good weekend, and I'd like to say Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> Pray that our, our Sabbath will be uh, filled with God's peace. Amen. So in our study uh, today, or for this week, <clears throat> it's on this uh, section of Scripture, uh, this portion, this reading that's titled Balak. Um, it's because he's the first person that's mentioned uh, in this section of Scripture about Balak. Although he's not the prime or primary character <clears throat> in here, he's all throughout this story, uh, but the main character in this story is really Balaam. I want to start off by saying this. I've actually been looking forward to this evening for about a year, Literally. Uh, we've covered the topic of Balaam a number of times when we were marching through the New Testament. Uh, it's in 2 Peter. Jude at least alludes to the story, uh, but you also see it in the book of Revelation. Uh, Balaam and his sin, this story, gets more biblical real estate than any other sinful act and story in Scripture. It's massive. Uh, <clears throat> this is why you, you, you find the story of, of Balaam uh, here in Numbers, comes up again in Deuteronomy, comes up in Joshua, comes up in the, in the prophets, um, in uh, Micah. We'll get to that. That's a major section that we'll look at tonight. Uh, I believe also in Nehemiah and other places, comes up again, like I said, in the New Testament, comes up in Second Peter, comes up in Revelation. Like I said, Jude, I believe, at least alludes to this story. And so when you go, okay, so this happened while they're wandering around in the wilderness, while they are even in um, Israel, after they've conquered the land and all that, the story about Balaam keeps coming up. Israel keeps getting referred to this issue of Balaam. You find it in the New Testament. You find it in the first part of the book of Revelation when he's writing to the church in Pergamum. And he says, this I hold against you, that you have some there that still hold to the teaching of Balaam. So if God is still dealing with this, not only just in the New Testament, but in the book of Revelation, and he gets this much real estate, it's safe to say that God is ticked off about it. I mean, he is thoroughly ticked off, and we're going to see why here in a moment. <clears throat> so there are a lot of passages here. Like I said, it gets a lot of real estate. I'm going to fly through a lot of this here in Numbers. I want to focus on something else. I'll give you the big picture of what's happening here. So let's read this first section in Numbers 22. We'll read the verses 2 through 6, <clears throat> and then we want to talk about, okay, Balaam and who is he? Where does he come from? All this kind of, which is fascinating. So starting in verse 2, it says, And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was in great dread of the people because they, there were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak the son of Zippor, who was the king of Moab at that time, 
sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Amwa, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, they cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now and curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. Watch this. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. You might want to underline that. Um, And we pray that God would honor the reading of his word. Amen? Amen. So uh, it's the story about Balaam. There are many people that will say, well, Balaam was a prophet of God. I don't think he was. Uh, And we'll get into why I believe that. Um, I believe that he was, well, in actuality, he was a magician. He dealt in divination. And so we're going to see where even that comes from. But, um, and we'll look, we're going to look at this. But so I want you to notice here that Balak is the king of Moab. And then he talks to the Midianites. And what's he saying? He said, look, these people have come up out of Egypt. We're scared of them. Isn't that funny? Because it wasn't that long ago, right, that we were reading where the Israelites were scared of everybody in the land. Now we're finding out, and they're not even in, they're not even crossing over, right? Now you got the Midianites and the Moabites, and they're scared. The king of Moab is scared of them. And now he's going to go to, watch this, one of his enemies. Maybe if we band together, we can defeat them. And watch this. And on top of that, let's go pay and get this magician to come and help us. Because he says right here, we know that whom you bless is blessed and whom you curse is cursed. Who does that sound like? What did God himself say about Abraham? I'm going to bless you, and everyone who blesses you will be blessed, and everyone who curses you will be cursed. Now we got Balak talking about Balaam, and I know that can get confusing, right? Balaam and Balak and Balaam and Balak and Balak and Balak, you know, who's who? Balaam is the magician or the, let's call him a prophet. Balak is the king in Moab. And Balak knows because he's heard about Balaam. Balaam has a a reputation for being someone who can curse people or bless people depending on what he says. You following that? Doesn't mean that he's godly. Doesn't mean that he's God's prophet. That's just something that he's learned to do. And evidently, he's had some success at it. He now has two kings wanting to hire him to help them defeat the Israelites. You you, you tracking with all of that? All right, here's something I want you to see. I've got it for you in your notes, and I gave you a family tree here of Terah because I want you to see something. According to Jewish tradition, Jacob's wicked uncle Laban had a son named Beor who became the father of Balaam. 
You remember the story about Laban? <clears throat> Jacob, who becomes Israel. Jacob and Esau. Jake, Esau sells Jacob his birthright for a bowl of soup. Uh, and then Jacob kind of steals the birthright, you know, the, the, the blessing. You know, he goes in there disguised as his brother, uh, and his, his mother's a part of this whole thing. And then Esau finds out, and he's like, I'm going to kill him. And so Jacob's mother, which is Rebecca, says, you need to leave, you know, and, and, and I'll basically tell you when it's okay to come back. So Jacob goes where he goes to Rebecca, his mother, goes to her brother Laban. Do you see that in the, you at least see the names here in the, in the genealogy I've got for you here? So Jacob is Rebekah's son, Laban is Rebekah's brother, and Jacob is the one that goes to Laban, and he stays there, and he falls in love, uh, right, with the, his daughter, and then what happens? Laban lies to him, you know, and gives him Leah, you know, Jacob gets drunk and he doesn't know who he's marrying. Duh. Anyhow, he gets drunk and doesn't know who he's marrying, wakes up the next morning and goes, you're, you're her sister. I'm not supposed to be marrying you. And so then Laban goes, well, just work for me another seven years and, and I'll give you, you know, your, your, your bride and all this. And so um, he, he does that. And so <clears throat> here's what I want you to see. And I don't have all these verses for you. I'm trying to tie something together for you. You remember the story about Jacob and how God is blessing him and he has all the, the goats and the sheep and stuff and they're mating and, and Jacob tells Laban, look, I'll take all the spotted sheep and, and everything. You can have all the ones that aren't. And so then what happens is Laban goes and gets all the spotted sheep and everything and hides them so his, his nephew can't get them. He's trying, to, he's trying to force him into slave labor is what he's doing. is what he's already been doing. And so Jacob takes a stick and puts it in the water and then the sheep start mating and then they start having nothing but spotted and these speckled you know, sheep and stuff and he's getting rich and everything. And here's what I want you to see, that in that story, Laban comes to Jacob and he says this. Y'all listening? He says, I have learned through, watch this, divination, witchcraft. I have learned through divination that God has blessed me. And in the original Hebrew, it looks like what he's saying is God's made me rich because of you. He's, he's, a, he's practicing witchcraft, divination. You remember the rest of that story? Some of you might remember it. Uh, Jacob realizes, man, I got to get out of Dodge. I got to get out of here because, you know, I think he might even kill me. They sneak off. His wife, Rachel, she, what does she do? She steals her father's idols. In the scripture, it says she steals his gods. Laban finds out. He tracks him down. He's going to kill him. Jacob goes, we haven't taken your stuff. His own daughter lies to him and says, you know, I'm in my, my monthly cycle. I can't get up. And she's sitting on these idols. You get into the Jewish thoughts on this, and they're saying that what they think what was really happening was because her father delved in witchcraft. 
cursing and blessing. And that what she was actually trying to do was to break the curses off. That he wouldn't have his power. So she stole it from him because she wanted to go with her husband. And he had worked for 14 years for her. That's love, amen? So he, he's involved in divination. Well, <clears throat> this is now according to Jewish tradition because it, you have to kind of dig into a lot of other stuff to find this, but this is why I wanted you to see this. They believe that Laban had a son named Beor who becomes eventually the father of Balaam. Now, as you start thinking about this and looking at this, you might go, well, now hold on a minute. Israel's been in Egypt for like 400 years. How's all that possible? Well, it is highly possible that Laban could have had a son named Beor and then could have had another descendant named Beor again. When I did some tracing on my ancestry, we had a whole lot of George Washington Henrys. Got real confusing. Um, back in the day. Um, it's, it's not that uncommon. You know, it's, it's just not. And it, it's not even new in, in our day. So I don't think it's all that strange that we would find Balaam coming from Laban. Now here's a little side note. This is not what I want to spend all of our time talking about because the topic is much, much larger than this. But here's what I do want to point out. Dads, because now we've got even more young families here and kids. What kind of legacy are you leaving for your kids? What kind of legacy are you pouring into your children? The Scripture says that the sins of the fathers will go down to the third and the fourth generation. But those that love God, the blessings of God will go to what? Thousands of generations. You see it all through Scripture. It's, you know, monkey see, monkey do. You only know what you know. And the most powerful thing you know is what you're living with. Because you only know what you know. You only know what you've experienced. So parents, grandparents, maybe you're thinking, well, I'm, but I'm a grandparent at this point. No problem. What values are you pouring into your children and grandchildren and those around you? It will have massive implications in the future. Don't think that it won't. Do we say one thing here and then go home and do something else? What do you think the kids really remember? You think they actually remember what I say? You can't remember what I can't remember what I said. Somebody, man, you had that what you said? I'm like, well, what, what, what did I say? I don't remember what I said. Uh, you know what they do remember? They remember, they don't remember what you say. They remember who you are. What values you were willing to fall on the sword over. How much toothpaste we either are or aren't. And that goes with them. We see it in Laban. You can see it in Isaac and Jacob and Abraham too. We don't have time to chase all that uh, of the things that they did. But I just wanted you to see this because I thought it was fascinating that Balaam is involved in divination. 
I'm going to show you how I think it's obvious that that's the case. Um, Number one, we've already said that the kings and the people around them already believe, hey, this guy's good at cursing people or blessing people through his stuff. And whomever you bless is blessed and whomever you curse is cursed. So, you know, come and we'll pay you to curse these people so we can win in battle and kill them. That's not a prophet of God. You don't see that in any of the prophets of God. They never do anything like that. Nothing like that. (laughs) But Balaam's already got a career doing it. You can't sit here now and tell me that he's a prophet of God. I just don't believe it. I don't think Scripture even supports it. Turn the page and go with me to page 2. We've got a lot to cover here. (coughs) So you pick up in verse 12, because they've come to Balaam. They're like, hey, we want you to come. We want you to curse these people. When you read that whole story, it's amazing because Balaam's always talking about himself. All through that story, he's always talking about himself. Man, this is Balaam. I'm the prophet. I'm the one who hears from God. Listen to the oracle of Balaam. And he goes on and on and on. Blah, 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 blah. Talking about himself. So here in verse 12, it says, God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused. Let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come to us. Once again, Balak sent princes, more in number, more honorable than these, and they came to Balaam and they said to him. The common thought is that Balak thought, okay, he's negotiating. He wants more money, so we'll send more money. Um. So they said to him, Thus says Balak, son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor. And whatever you say to me, I'm going to... In other words, name your price. Just name your price and come. That's how much of a reputation he had. Come and curse his people for me. But Balaam said and answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his whole house full of silver. What do you think he's saying? How far are you willing to go, dude? How much are you really wanting to pay? Oh, I couldn't come even if you gave me this whole building full of silver. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So you two, please stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord... Did you just see that? It's two-faced. He's calling God his God. But then he's saying, he's not going to let me go. But you know what? Why don't you go stay here? Let me go talk to him. Let me go ask him again. That's what he's saying. He's negotiating with them. He's trying to negotiate with God. One thing to to notice here, he does not uh, say that God doesn't exist. Yahovah, the one true God. He knows that that he exists. He's just not that scared of him. So in verse 20, it says, And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If these men have come to call you, rise and go with them. Look at this. You might want to underline this. But only do what I tell you. So now he's saying, look, I'm going to let you go, but you can only do what I say. There's something in here that's absolutely fascinating. So let me continue. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. There's, now I'm, I'm gonna, we're going to jump all the way to verse 27. <clears throat> Because it says, uh, 
Uh, it's, it's talking about these other... Anyways, here's what I want you to see. Um, over and over and over again in here, God says, you can only say what I tell you you can say. Why is that so important? Because the words that come out of your mouth have more power than you're giving it credence. I have... I have struggled with this all along because I've known about this story for a long time, and especially over the last few years, this has just been a massively important story that I'm coming to understand and how it relates to the rest of Scripture. It's amazing. But I've also thought, well, I mean, God, you could have let him go and just say whatever he wants to say and then just not let it come to pass. Unless whatever it was he was going to do and say would initiate Something supernatural. We think, well, you know, it's just words. Words don't really, what's a word, what can a word do? You're going to say some incantation and something really weird is going to happen. Well, there's power in the tongue. How did God create? He spoke. What did He give us? He gave us a tongue to what? Proclaim who He is. Uh, there's something powerful about it. I do not have the answer. All I know is there's a big battle going on here, and God over and over and over again says, you can go, but you can only say what I tell you to say. You're not going to say anymore. You're not going to add to it. You're not going to take away from it. You're going to say what I put in your mouth. So you can go, but you'd better only say what I want you to say. Evidently, God also knew his heart because now we got this. Anybody remember the story of the talking donkey? Right? This is actually a sub-point in this whole story, but it's also hilarious. And I'm going to show you why. God has this sense of humor and irony that is amazing. So let's go ahead and jump to verse 27. Now he's on the donkey, he's riding, and the donkey starts fighting him, basically. So in verse 27 says, When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, Lord, she lays down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. This is the third time the donkey has changed directions because she's seen an angel, the angel of the Lord. This is the third time. I'm, I fast forwarded a little bit because of time. Verse 28, Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? This donkey looks up at him and starts talking to him. I've always said, you know, if if God can speak to anybody through a donkey, surely he can speak through me. I mean, jokingly, right? But this is absolutely hilarious when you understand what Balaam was involved in. He said, um, and Balaam starts talking... Balaam doesn't even think this is weird. Balaam doesn't go, oh my Lord, there's a donkey talking to me. Anybody here watch uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Well, it's a great movie and, and book, you know, and they're, they're, they're in the wardrobe, but they're, you know, out in the cold and everything, and the kids are talking, and uh, the, uh, Peter, you know, well, let's follow the uh, the beaver, and she, she, she goes, why are we following the beaver? And she, he goes, because he said we should trust him. And he goes, it's a beaver. He's not supposed to be talking. You know? 
<laughs> this is a donkey. It's not supposed to be talking. But Balaam doesn't freak out. Why? He's already accustomed to hearing spirits and talking and seeing things. Watch this. Through divination, which involved using dead animal parts. I'll say it that way because of our audience. So they would go through these ritual acts of sacrificing animals, using bits and pieces and parts and bones and stuff to read the future and watch this, try to open up a portal to the unseen realm to get demonic activity. Which still happens, by the way. If you didn't know that that's still going on, it is still going on all over the place. That's a whole nother sermon. <clears throat> so, um, the, Balaam says to the donkey, because you've made a, you've made a fool out of me. <laughs> says to the donkey, you've made a fool out of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand and then I would have just killed you. Another piece of irony. And the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey in which you've ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, well, no. Then it says, then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. Balaam just got through saying, if I had a sword, I'd have killed you. God opens his eyes and goes, here's the angel of the Lord, which probably Yeshua, standing there with the sword in his hand, saying, I'm fixing to kill you. Wow. <clears throat> Um, so Balaam, he says, he bows down, falls on his face. The angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now, I would have killed you and let her live. Here's the irony. Balaam has spent his life and his career, his livelihood, getting messages from dead animals, opening up portals to the demonic realm to bless or curse people. And now God uses a live animal to make a fool out of him and save his life. Thank God didn't know all that was going to happen. Sure he did. So you get to, let's, let's keep going because there's a lot to cover. Verse 12, and Balaam said to Balak, now he's, uh, this is all the way in chapter 24. So what's happened is <clears throat> Balaam, he shows up with Balak and uh, he starts offering all these sacrifices. Build for me seven altars here and seven bulls and seven rams and maybe and then I'll go over here and then maybe the Lord will listen. And then he comes back and he prophesies and just basically blesses Israel. And so then Balak goes, well, let's go over here. Let's go to a higher mountain. They do it. Build for me seven altars over here and sacrifice seven bulls and seven rams. And then I'll see if God will bless and show me what I can say. And, all. and he comes back and he says what God put in his heart and he blesses Israel again. He keeps doing it. So you get to chapter 24, verse 12. And Balaam said to Balak, did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me? If Balak should give me his house, he's repeating it. Why? Because he's going to get to something here in just a second. 
If Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own will. What the Lord speaks, that will I speak. And now behold, I'm going to, going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people when in the latter days. You might want to underline that. Go back and read it because now he's, he gives a prophecy I believe from God, and he prophesies that the people of Israel are basically going to overrun in the latter days the people of Moab and the people of the Midianites. Fascinating, huh? Now you get to chapter 25. So in other words, he says, I can't do anything. I I can't curse them. That's the whole point of this story. And then what is he doing? He's trying, he's still trying to do necromancy. He's still trying to do divination with all of these sacrifices. Folks, those sacrifices he he was doing were not sanctioned by God. You don't find in Scripture where God says, you know what, if you'll do these sacrifices, then I'll listen and I'll respond. That's what you do to demons. False gods. God never said that. We're going to get into what he did say. It's amazing because, once again, it's in your Bible. So you get to chapter 25. Balaam comes up with the answer. Let me, instead of reading it, let me just tell you what happens. Balaam realizes, look, God's not going to let me curse him. So he goes to Balak and he goes, but here's what you can do. Take your daughters, take all these beautiful women, and seduce the Israelites. Bring them down close, seduce the Israelites, to get involved in sexual immorality and get them to worship your gods. If you do that, God will kill them. And that's exactly what they did. They sent their own daughters down there to seduce Israel, to have sexual relations with them, and to get them to worship their gods. And a plague breaks out. 24,000 of them die. It is so bad, God goes... Get the elders that are doing this and allowing this and hang them in the sun. While that is going on and Moses is trying to deal with this, this plague starts breaking out. And to show you the brazenness of the Israelites, one of them, a leader, gets one of the Moabite women, brings them to his tent to consummate the relationship in front of all of them. It says, while they're weeping at the tent of meeting, the, where the, the tabernacle, they're weeping over all this that's been going on and people are dying. Remember the other one where Aaron is holding up the censer and saying the, the wrath of my father basically won't, will, will stop here. Now you got this wrath coming. People are dying like immediately. God is ticked because of what they're doing. And it's not just the sexual immorality. It says they join themselves to the Baal of Peor. That means the Lord of, the God of Peor, that place. Eleazar, one of the priests, is filled with rage for God and kills the woman and the man together with one thrust. You can let your imagination go on what was going on publicly, right through her and right through him. And because of that, God stopped the plague. 
and literally blesses him for the rest of his generations. He said, because he had a zeal for me. I'd like to be like that guy, amen? So that's what, that's what Balaam did. He's like, look, I, I can't fight against God directly. I can't curse them because God has blessed them. But here's how you can defeat them and God in the process. Just get them, watch this, to do something that's called uh, synchronicity or, or syncretism. It means syncing different pagan religions with the religion of God. And God will kill them for it. Can anybody here just kind of go, that's bad? Then why have we done it for the last 1,700 years? Oh, we think because we got Jesus, it's okay for us to do that. We can mix pagan religions. We can take a pagan religion and Christianize it, sanctify it by our own authority, and think that God's okay with it. And He's not. He's giving us hints, even in the New Testament and in Revelation. He goes, this is one thing I have against you. You still have some people there that hold to the teaching of Balaam that are teaching my people to eat foods, sacrifice to idols, and get involved in sexual immorality. Well, I thought Jesus died on the cross so we don't have to worry about eating foods off to idols and we can eat whatever we want, we can do whatever we want because, hey, we live under grace and we don't live under the law. <laughs> Wrong. And there's a day of reckoning coming and I'm telling you, what God wants is our obedience instead of our arrogance. So, the... If you look on the first, uh, first page, I always have three sections of Scripture written up there. The first one is Numbers 22, basic, chapter 22 through 25, basically. That's what's called the Torah portion. The next portion is called the Hof Torah, or the extra reading to the Torah. It's found in the rest of the Old Testament, and it's passages that relate to the story in the Torah. The Torah is... Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the first five books. The Haftor is the actual extra readings in the rest of the Old Testament that ties in with the story. We're going to read and spend the rest of our time dealing mainly with Micah because I want you to see, because this ties to this story and this prophet is basically telling Israel, man, you guys have been messing up and you need to pay attention. And it goes right back to Balaam and Balak. This is after they've been in the, the land of Israel. So when you go to Micah, this is still on page 3, Micah chapter 5, verses 6 through chapter 6, verse 8. It goes, uh, Then they shall shepherd the, the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land, land and treads with it within our border. Verse 7. I've got some here, and I did not highlight them today because I wanted you to do it. Kind of helps when you actually engage. You need to highlight verse 7. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples. This is still talking about a future event that we're now living in. You following me? 
It says the the people, the remnant of Jacob is going to be out in the midst of many peoples. Like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. Verse 8, you might want to highlight the first part of verse 8. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations and in the midst of many peoples. He's repeating it so that we'll understand that he, he means what he's saying. Like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of the sheep. Let me go on down to verse 10. In that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. In that day. Whenever you see that in Scripture, almost always, what, what, is he, what do you think it's really referring to? It's always usually referring to the day of the Lord. In that day, in this day that's coming, this great day, it's the day of the Lord. He goes, declares the Lord, declares Yahovah himself, I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. In other words, I'm going to destroy everything you're holding on to for your power, what you think makes you strong, that gives you, you think it gives you security. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. Now, you might want to just put a big circle on the next page around verses 12, 13, 14, and 15. And you see on mine here, I highlighted them for you. Look at what he says. When is this going to happen? In, the, in that day when he's going he's to clean house. All of his people are scattered among the nations. I will cut off sorceries. From your hand, divination, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out the Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. Look at this. And in anger... And wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Oh my goodness. You think God is still upset? Yeah. So then you carry on in chapter 6 because he says, Here's what, hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills... He's like, go ahead and plead your case before the creation of the world because they've been here since the beginning, and see if they don't stand as a sign against you, is what he's saying. In other words, your descendants might have passed, and you may say that you don't really understand what's going on. Why don't you try to plead your case among, to, the, to the actual ground? You're not going to get out of this. Hear you mountains and in the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the, Lord, of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment, oh my goodness, against who? Oh, I thought he was just going to be a little upset with everybody else. I mean, after all, we got Jesus. He's not going to be upset with us, right? Scripture tells us that judgment starts with the house of God. Mm. The Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Now, look at what he says. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And look at this. This is another little side point. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Huh? 
I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. I thought women were just supposed to be in the background. Wrong. Ladies, you're supposed to be a princess warrior. We don't have time for that sermon. That's how God created you. The Ezra Konegdo, go research it, talk to me afterwards. You're supposed to be a princess warrior. God has never looked down on women. The Old Testament is not a beat down on women. That's a lie out of the pit of hell. Don't make me do this by myself. (laughs) Then look what he says. Oh, my people, remember Balak, king of Moab, devised what he devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. He goes, do you not remember what happened? It's the story we just read. And that we just highlighted. Do you not remember what went on there? And then he, verse 6, he goes, So, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the Lord, before God on high? Shall I come with Him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. What is it? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? That's what He wants. He's like, do you actually think God needs a bunch of blood from bulls and goats and rams? And you think if you go through that garbage that God's going to hear your prayer? That's divination, people. It's witchcraft. We go, but God just commanded them to do all these sacrifices. Well, now that's what we've got all these other verses for. I got a lot of them. We're going to fly through them. <clears throat> because now it's going to deal with sacrifices. What was Balaam doing? He was offering all these sacrifices that weren't sanctioned. Right? Which was a form of divination, which he probably learned from his grandfather, great, great, however far back you want to go, Laban, because that's what Laban was doing. And we go, well, but God said that we should do these sacrifices. Folks, we need to understand the sacrificial system. If you don't understand the sacrificial system, then you get into this hogwash of people saying that God required the sacrifices in the Old Testament. That's how they got saved. Jesus died on the cross. Now we're delivered from all that stuff. Now there's no need for sacrifices. And then you get off into all this replacement theology garbage because we think that God required sacrifices and that's how you get saved, that's how you come before God and and all that stuff. Wrong. We've said it before, I'm going to say it again. That's how you came into the tabernacle. You don't walk through the yard, step in dog poo, sheep poo, cow poo, whatever, and then come right into God's house and track that garbage in there. When you touch something that's unclean, that's connected with death, decaying, and sin... You have to go through a process to clean your physical body before you can come into God's house or His holiness would kill you. It is just that simple. God never said, you know what? As an individual, you know, you you, you committed a sin. You know, before I'm even going to look at you again, you need to go kill a ram. Go, Go kill a ram. I'll be happy with that. He never said that. Now He's going to tell us. 
about a dozen times, that's not what I said. You have to get into the rest of the Bible, and we have to actually read it. So in 1 Samuel 15, 22 through 23, this is when Saul disobeys God. He's going to do all these sacrifices as an individual to try to please God. <laughs> Samuel shows up. I really love this because now I'm raising sheep, and I'm reminded of this all the time when Samuel says, you know, did you do it? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. And he goes, then what is this bleeding of sheep I hear in my ears? You know, such uh, humor. This, so he, he disobeyed God, and this is Samuel's reply to him. Has the Lord... Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? In other words, does He have delight in sacrifices? Does He delight in that as much as obedience? And He goes, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. God just wants us to listen and obey Him. Then look what He says, For rebellion is as the sin of what? You've got it there in front of you. Divination. Meaning, practicing the same thing Balaam practiced when we're rebellious. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And presumption as the iniquity of idolatry. Why would he have to say that? Rebellion and being be presumptuous. It's all about you. We're just going to make it all about us, and we're just going to assume that this is what God meant. We're just going to kind of do it our own way. He goes, man, that's, that's like idolatry. Why? Because you're thinking more about you. You're not thinking about me and what I said, and you're not even doing what I said. And on top of that, you're twisting what I said. Um, and then he says, why? Because you've rejected the word of the Lord. And because of that, he's also rejected you as king. Now he's talking about Saul there. Now to jump down to Jeremiah 7, 17 through 23. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, the women knead dough, and they make cakes to the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. He goes on talking, jump down. By the way, if you haven't been highlighting those, you might want to highlight those especially that one in verse 18. You jump down to verse 22. Here we go again. <clears throat> verse 22, For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. Can, you, can maybe some of us be honest and go, huh? I mean, because we just read that, right? What's he talking about here? Personal sacrifices as a way to come before God, to get Him to hear you, to get Him to do things. He never said that. What He said was, when you come into my house, if you've done these other things, or if you've even had to bury your uncle, here's how you go through a process to keep my house clean so that you don't defile my house and I have to kill you. So he's saying right here, that's not what I said. I didn't command you guys about burnt offerings and sacrifices to do that kind of stuff. But this is the command I gave them. Obey my voice and I will be your God. You shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. That's what he said. Just obey me for crying out loud. Look at what it says in Hosea 6 verse 6. 
For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. It goes on. Isaiah chapter 1, it's verses 11 through 20. We don't have time to chase all of those, but look, although I think I highlighted almost the whole thing. Look what it says in verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. God's clear. You think God wanted that? No. Think He delights in it in any way, form, or fashion? No. He can't be any more clear. And He says, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. There was only one person that was supposed to be doing that. Remember when we went through that with Leviticus? It's supposed to be the high priest or the other priests that were involved in it when they would go and he would go into the Holy of Holies only once a year. And so when they would come out, they were to smell like that. And you knew that he was a priest that had been before God. And no one was to use it for personal benefit or perfume. That was a big no-no. Now he's saying, you're all doing it. It's an abomination to me. You're making me sick. What are you doing? Then look what he says. The new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure. Look at Now here's the key. Did God tell us that we're to keep Sabbaths? That's why we're here tonight. We're trying to honor the Sabbath because he said, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy, because I have called it holy. That's when we're supposed to meet and worship. Is a new moon an important thing? Of course it is. But we've got to be doing all this according to God's standards. Look what he says. He goes, I cannot endure iniquity and a solemn assembly. You you understand what he's saying? You can't live like the devil Sunday through Friday for us and then come in here on Saturday Man, isn't God good? Doesn't God love me? God says, if that's the case, what you're doing is making me sick to my stomach. Because what's He after? Folks, He's not after us keeping Torah, keeping the Sabbath, keeping the feast, doing all that stuff. And if we do all that stuff, then God's going to be happy. He wants us to do it because we love Him and we're surrendered over to His authority in our lives. He wants us to do it out of love and as a statement of who He is. We don't do it to get things. If we're doing it to get things, watch this, we've turned it into divination, sorcery, witchcraft. And I see it everywhere. I see it with Torah observant people. I'm doing this and God's going to bless me. I'm doing this God's going to bless me. I'm like, Really? I used to use these verses to argue against Torah-observant people. I'd say, have you not read your Bible? Because there's places in there where they were doing that, and God said, you're making me sick to my stomach. You're not doing it with the right heart. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter. God's like, you're, do you really think that's what I want? Do you really think I want you to be killing these animals and doing all this stuff? 
None of this was supposed to be this way. I had a way for doing this for you to come before me in my house. You weren't required to do it all the time to get me to smile at you like you think I actually like it. It's like I want to say in Paul Henry phrase, what the heck is wrong with you? That's not what God ever wanted. Uh, you turn the page and get to page six. And then he goes, your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. They're keeping new moon. They're out there blowing the shofar when the new moon would happen. They're keeping the Sabbath. They're blowing their shofar. They're studying. They're gathering together on the Sabbath and everything. But they're doing it all with the wrong heart, with the wrong attitude. And they're very, very sinful, very, very selfish, very, very self-centered. Folks, if that's the case with God, with His people, doing His biblical feasts, doing the real Sabbath and everything, let me just go ahead and step on this big elephant in the room. What do you think his attitude is towards the current common Christian culture when you got all this easy believism and a whole lot of what you see in the church is mimicking the world to try to get people in here and down an aisle? And I know, I have known ministers that were hired to prime the pump for the altar call in large churches in the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex. Because their job was on the line, one of them literally paid some winos to walk down the aisle so he'd keep his job. Because the pastors would say, well, that just kind of primes the pump, you know, and, and when people see people walking down the aisle, then they'll feel more comfortable, you know, walking down the aisle because it keeps that high-profile pastor looking good. Thank God is really happy about all that garbage. And then we take all these pagan religions and we mix it in with Christianity. There are evangelical churches that have labyrinths in the, in the building where they can walk through this thing and meditate and think that's okay. And the list goes on and on and on. Hmm. Look at what it says in verse 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Now here's the verse we all remember. It's on plaques, it's on books, you can find it in Christian bookstores, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be white as wool. Anybody ever hear that or see that on a plaque? Oh, we love quoting that one, don't we? Man, that sounds good. Man, Jesus is going to save me. I'm going to get clean. Everything's going to be fine because God goes, come on now, let's reason together. Man, even though your sins are scarlet, man, I can make them white. I can make them just come to Jesus. We'll clean it all up. Well, it would help if we would read our Bible in context and just read what it says. In context, what was he just saying? Clean up your act and do good. Now let's reason together. God's like, I'm not unreasonable. Let's reason together. Though your sins were as scarlet, 
They're going to be white as snow. Though they were crimson, they'll become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God is saying, come on now, let's reason together. Just do what I said. If you don't and you want to be rebellious and you still want to do all these new moon festivals or you want to meet on Sunday or you want to do whatever it is that you're doing and you think that I'm actually pleased with all that garbage when I can see what's going on in your heart and I know what you did yesterday and I know what came out of your mouth and I know how you're treating your wife and I know how you're treating your husband and I know how you're treating your kids. And not only that, I know the words you swallowed. And I know what was in your heart when you were treating your kids with this contempt or that contempt or saying this or saying that or beating them down or saying this curse over them. Oh, but I got Jesus and everything's good. I got news for you. It ain't good at all. Because God knows the heart. That's why Jesus said, it's not what goes in your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out because what comes out reveals what's really going on in the heart. And that's why God's going, I see all the right stuff you're doing but you make me want to throw up because I know what's going on in the heart and I know what's going on in the home behind closed doors. I know who you really are. And when I come, I'm going to clean house. Now, I got Jesus. Amen? I know my name's written in the Lamb's book of life, but I'm doing everything I can every day, and I am not perfect but I'm like, God, please give me one more day to do some more repenting because I want to get closer and I want to clean it up better tomorrow than today because it wasn't perfect yesterday. Can anybody else relate? And so I want to get a little bit closer because when you do come back, I want my cleanup list shorter then than it is now. Amos. Now we're in Amos, bottom of page six. I hate... I despise your feasts. <laughs> I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and great offerings, I will not accept them. Skip down. You might want to highlight this verse in verse 25. I've given you all these so you can go home and read them and study them. But in verse 25 it says, did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You see, if you don't understand the sacrificial system and you don't understand that when he told them to do that, it was so they could come into his house, this question doesn't make sense. You're sitting there going, well, he must be speaking in irony because of course he told them to bring sacrifices when they were in the wilderness. He's talking about individual He's like, is this what I really told you to do? Did I tell you that I needed sacrifices before I would even be with you? No. He said, once again, when these things happen and you're coming into my, my house, this is what you do so that you don't defile my house. We've covered this, but I, I'm slow, so I have to repeat it so I can remember. So that you don't defile my house and you don't die. I don't want you to die. Then look what he says. He goes, you shall take up Sukkoth, your king, and Kuron, 
your star God. Who's he talking to here? He's talking to Israel. You're going to take up your star God, your images that you've made for, your, for yourself. And I'm going to send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of all hosts. Wow. He's like, yeah, I'm going to let you go ahead and take up your images, your idols. Oh, we don't have those, though, do we? Anybody hanging a cross in your car so they can help you not have a wreck? I'm just saying. You wear your seat seats, are you doing that so that you have some kind of, I don't know, aura about you so that you don't get in trouble? Or are you doing it because he said, put it on your clothes because, Paul, you're a little dense. You can't remember. And when you're trying to put your phone in your pocket, you feel that. And you remember, oh, yeah, I need to do what God said. I need a reminder that I'm married to my king. But if you hang it up, they're going, oh, now, now I got this Jesus stuff going on. So, you know, I got my baby Jesus on. You know, he hates that, you know. You, you know, we got our little baby Jesus stuff going on so we can get this good aura going, you know, so God will be happy and he's going to send more angels and we get protected. That's witchcraft. That is divination and God hates it. In the Psalms, this is Psalms 40 on the last page. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. But you've given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you haven't required. Then I said, behold, I've come in the, in the scroll of the book. It's written to me. Who's that talking about? Jesus. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Somehow this printed wrong, and then you have the next passage there right next to it might want to underline that or whatever so that you can see that. <clears throat> now we're in Psalm 51 where it says, For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken, and, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Who's writing that one? King David is writing that one. When do you think he was writing it? That Bathsheba fox. He's been called out. David, a man after God's own heart, wrote a whole lot of the Psalms. What is it that he's saying? If I could fix this, I would. And he goes, and I know, oh God, you don't want sacrifices. You don't want burnt offerings for me to fix this. There's only one way to fix this, and that's for me to have a broken and contrite heart, a repentant spirit. That's where he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. If there's any wickedness in there, get it out, God. Forgive me and you create in me a clean heart. That's when David is saying this stuff. Because God doesn't want, he doesn't need an animal to make you right. Now you get into Peter, and I've just got them here for you, but we've already covered this. In 2 Peter 2, it's verses 14 and 15, and also in Revelation 2, 14. But I want you to notice here, 2 Peter, Peter's writing, and this is, when, this is after Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. And here in 2 Peter, Peter's saying, talking about these false prophets and false teachers, where? Within the church. And it says, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. 
They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. Here it is. They have followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. So what's the point in all of this? What can we learn from this? You know what God wants? He wants us to stop focusing on what we can get from Him, and He wants us to fall in love with Him. That's what He wants. Now, I'm going to tell you how to do that. It's real simple. The, way, the reason I know it's simple is because I've done it. This is not something you can whip up. You can't just make this happen. You can't just, I'm going to decide that I just really, 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 really love this person. Sometimes that's just kind of hard, right? And you can, I mean, to actually really love them. Like you'd want to spend your life with them, love them. The way I love this bride since I was 15, literally. Kind of hard to whip that up. You either just know it or you don't. When it comes to God and really, really, really loving Him, I'm going to give you the secret on how to, for that to happen. You pray and ask God to make it happen. It really is that simple. God, just like David, create in me a clean heart. God, help me love you more. Put a love in me that is not there. That's not what it should be. And pray it often. And watch it start to happen. Is there anybody here other than me that can honestly say, I don't love God the way I should? It's okay to raise your hand. I got mine up. Nowhere near like I should. And I still pray that. It rolls off my tongue sometimes driving down the road, working out in the field, chasing sheep or whatever, mowing the yard. I'm like, God, help me love you better. My love is frail, fragile. I am easily distracted, short-sighted, short memory, can fly off the handle. I know I'm the only one that has those problems, right? I can really fly off the handle. I'm learning to temper that. I'm learning to kind of pick areas because I'm like, no, just don't go there, you know, because you'll say something you really shouldn't be saying. And, you know, and so I'm trying to learn all that. But in the midst of all that, I'm like, God, help me love you better because I can't. But you can create it in me. And he will. When that happens, watch this, everything else starts to fall in place. Should we be keeping the Sabbath? Of course. Should we be following what the Word says? Of course. Should we be offering sacrifices today? No. Temple's not there. All of that will happen in the millennial kingdom. That'll happen later. But don't go out in your backyard this Passover and kill a sheep and offer it to God. You will be sinning because He said don't do that. There's only one place you do it. You have to do it in Jerusalem. 
You have to do it there at the temple. You have to do it there before him. You don't do it where you're scattered. Okay? So here's the deal. If you're still learning this, still trying to figure it out, I go, do this. Just take it. Do it again. Take a deep breath. Let it out. Relax. It's going to be okay. One rule and one rule only. Love God and walk humbly before Him. That's what He said in Hosea. This is what God desires. More than sacrifice, everything else, when we're rebellious, it's the same sin as divination as Balaam. Be not rebellious, but love your God and walk, what does it say? Humbly with Him. I've seen pride in so many pulpits, it makes me want to throw up. God says He literally, His face is against the proud. That is one tendency that if you see in somebody, I'm just going to tell you, you probably ought to just run. Seriously. Because God said this is what pleases Him. To love Him and walk humbly with your God. Why? Because you and I ain't nothing. But we're everything. Because we're reflections of His image. He created us to glorify Him. And because of that, yes. But in our own... We're saved by grace through faith and even that, not of yourself. It is a gift of God. Why? Because you and I would boast. <laughs> At least I was smart enough to ask Jesus, you moron. There are Christians with that kind of attitude. And you know what? I'm going to get sucked out of here in that pre-trib rapture. And all you guys, you're just going to get what you deserve because you rejected the Messiah. So just good luck with that one. You're going to go through the tribulation and I'm not. Surprise! Because that's not the way it's going to happen. God loves you so much. This story about Balaam, it's, it's not a good story. It's bad. Syncretism is bad. With or without Jesus, I'm telling you, it's bad. He doesn't like it. And he said, don't worship me that way. Worship me the way I said, but watch this. Worship me the way I said, which means I want your heart. And stop adding to what I said when he didn't say it. He loves you. He loves you so much that he crossed eternity to die on a cross for you. To open the door so that we could get remarried to the husband, the unfaithful bride. We can get grafted into Israel, get grafted into this incredible love story where we can walk with the creator of the universe who's coming back to get us and will set all things straight. So as soon as you think you're all that or you've really got it figured out, that's when you're on thin ice. You ought to back up and say, God, it's all you, man. It's just all you. I've got nothing. It's all you. That's what he's after. 